The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. So this morning we're going to be uh, starting into Romans chapter 3. And what a powerful passage of scripture that is. And we're going to spend uh, uh, the front half of Romans uh, today, this morning, as we go into the sermon and in the front half of Romans, it's a, it's a somber reminder of how we are not righteousness on our own. None of us is righteous in the eyes of God. And on our own, none of us could have freedom from our sin. On our own, none of us could honor God. Not one of us could worship him. Not one of us could know him. And that is a sober and stark reminder in that front half. But in the second half, which we'll spend more time in next week, is this celebration of how we have this loving God, this loving God who reached into our hopelessness and into our helplessness and made a way so that through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been given all of those things, all of that righteousness that we could not have attained ourselves. And, And there's so much more that we could say about that right now, but just for right now, let me just say this, that that is the God that we worship. That is the God, as we stand and sing, that that is the God who we're singing to and singing about, and there is lots to celebrate. So I invite you to celebrate from the bottom of your heart. Let's give God all of our worship. Please stand, and let's sing to him. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. We're going to hear the scripture read this morning by Paul and Corrine Hildebrand. So we're going to watch that on video just now. I'm Corrine Hildebrand and my husband, Paul. We're doing the Bible reading for you this morning. Taking from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. Then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, Does that mean that God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. But some might say our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than the others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise, no one is seeking God. All have turned away, all have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. 
Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And now taking a reading from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 32. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For it is for if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with this world. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Hello, my name is Doug Friesen. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this morning, I want to start off by asking you a question. How many of you, you can raise your hand for this because I can see you now. How many of you actually enjoy going to musicals or plays? Can I see? A number of you, okay. So this is wonderful because you might not know this about me, but I'm actually quite cultured. I enjoy going to plays and musicals. Most of the time, I get my own chair. Sometimes I've been on a you know, a platform or a bench, but all my friends' musicals, when I've gone to the elementary schools, the junior high and the high school, they have been phenomenal, and I think I know most things about plays because of that. And so I, I love plays, I love the arts, and I had never really been in a theater like this before until last year, actually, at this time, I was on a ship that was crossing from Fort Lauderdale over to Barcelona. And on the ship, if any of you have been on a cruise line, they have lots of entertainment, and part of it is musicals that you can go to, different plays you can go to. And so I entered into this theater, and I'm like, wow, this is quite the thing. I wasn't expecting this on the ship. So I looked for a seat, and I found a place where I could sit. I sat down, and I started having this really nice conversation with the man beside me. I'll say his name is John. So John and I start talking, and we just hit it off right away. And he's telling me about different things about his life. He tells me about his family. And then he says, you know, a number of years ago, I realized that I was living a lie. I realized that I, I couldn't be married to my wife anymore. I, I came to the understanding that I'm homosexual. And I told her that. So we got divorced. And, but we still have a very uh, amicable relationship. I have adult children. I have a really good relationship with them. And then we just kept talking about different things. And then I said, I asked him things about, you know, why are you on the boat? And he said, oh, I'm here with a bunch of friends. Uh, you know, every year, two, three times a year, we meet on a cruise ship and we go just for travels together. And then he said, so why are you on the boat? 
And I said, oh, well, I'm on my sabbatical, and I'm actually going to Spain, and then I'm going to be backpacking across Spain for a month, and then I'm going to teach in uh, Romania, Lord willing. And he says, oh, he goes, so, like, are you a professor? And I said, no, no, I'm a pastor. And he went, oh, uh, like one of those mainline pastors? I said, no, no, I'm, I'm a Baptist pastor. And he goes, oh. And that opened up a door for conversation. And partway through, and I'm giving you a summary of about a 20-minute conversation. He looked at me and he said, well, and it was all a really good conversation. He looked at me and he said, you know, one of the things you really need to know about me is that I believe that it's very important that we don't judge others and that we just love them. And I said, you know what, I completely agree that we're not supposed to judge people. The Bible tells us that we're not supposed to condemn people by judging them in that way. And they're meant to be love, loved. But that loving also is partly understanding that in this world there's right and wrong, and God wants us to direct people in a way to live that he says is right. That's what love is. And he says, well, I don't know if I agree with that. He goes, I don't really believe that there's evil, I think people are just really good, and that most people are just doing their best and they shouldn't be judged. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, that sounds really good, John. The problem is, I don't believe you. And he kind of went back in his chair and he says, what do you mean you don't believe me? And I said, well, I, I don't believe you that you don't think there's evil and that there's only good. He goes, how can you say that to me? I said, well, We've been talking for a little while, and I already know that you're a kind man. I know that you love your family. I know that you love your children. And I am pretty sure that right now, if you got a call that you were to go to the desk and you found out information that one of your children was killed by a drunk driver or had been murdered, or somewhere when you get home you found out that your child had been molested by a loved one in your family for many, many years, I'm sure there's something in your spirit that would just get so riled up, so angry, and you'd say, that is wrong. Someone should pay for that. And you'd be absolutely right. And I'd also hope that in time, you'd be at a place where you could forgive that person even though they should still be held accountable for what they did wrong. And so yeah, I, I, I think so, but I'm still not convinced about people being evil, about maybe that's just conduct. And I said, well, I just gave another example. I said, you know, um, uh, John, I can tell from the way you're living that God's blessed you with finances, you're able to enjoy your retirement, you're, you're able to be with friends. I'm also pretty convinced that if you were told that you were dead broke because your accountant or your wealth manager spent all your money, you'd be pretty angry about that too. He goes, yeah, I, I would be. And uh, so the, the conversation just kind of kept going in that way, and then all of a sudden there, I think it's called the curtain call, you know, you hear the bell saying, get ready, quiet down. And he looked at me and he said, Doug, you know, I know we have to stop talking right away, but I just want to ask you something. As a Christian, do you think that you still sin? And I, I looked at John and I said, John, I am the worst sinner I know. And again, he kind of went back in his chair and he goes, how can you say that? That can't be right. I said, you know, I'm sure that there's people whose outward appearance, the sins they do are more blatant than mine, but I don't know anybody's heart as well as I know my own and my own need for God, for forgiveness. And then the, the music started playing and so we had to really be quiet. I just leaned over to him and I said, John, the one thing you need to know about me 
is that I believe there's a holy and loving God who wants everyone to know him, and he's made a way possible for that to happen. And uh, if I can, I want to tell you another story about John later on, but that will be it for now. Today we're getting into Romans 3, 1 to 20, and uh, as you've already heard, this is a, a hard portion of Scripture, but a very beautiful portion of Scripture. And, and I want you to be aware as we hear some of these hard truths, the heart of the man who is speaking it because God has given him such a heart. We read in Romans 9, 1 to 3, this is Paul, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. As you hear these words, understand that they're spoken by someone through the grace of God to say, I love you. I want God's best for you. I would change places with you if only I could. I hope that you understand the beauty of the words I'm going to tell you because they can lead to eternal life if you understand the whole picture. And so far in Romans, we've been just really learning that everyone is guilty. Paul first talks to the Gentiles and he says, the willingly ignorant, you're guilty. This is from chapter 1, verse 18 onwards. And then he starts talking to the Jewish church and he says, the self-righteous, you are guilty. And then those of you who are super religious, guess what? You are guilty too. And what you need to be aware of is that there is a wrath of God and you don't want to be the recipient of it. You need to understand that you deserve to be, but you don't want to be the recipient. I want to warn you of that. I want you to know that there is a way out. So that's why the message today is called Accepting the Bad News to Embrace the Good. So now we're going to get into the passage for today. And again, this is starting in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. And Paul is anticipating, based on what he's said so far, that some of the people that are listening are not going to like what they've been hearing. And so he anticipates their objections. And he says, I want to talk with you about this. I want to just deal with it head on. And so the first objection that he anticipates is that there's racial advantage. And actually, he wants to say that, you know, from chapter 2, you'd think that for the Jewish people, you have had all this privilege, you're, you're the chosen people, and he's been saying that doesn't save you. So now he's anticipating people are saying, well, well, then what happens? Like, what's, is there any benefit in being a Jew? This is what verse 1 says. And what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And you'd expect Paul to say, well, there's none. But he doesn't say that. He says in verse 2, there is much in every way. To begin with, Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God. You don't hear that phrase very often, but here you can take it to mean more or less the Old Testament. The Mosaic Law, the blessings, the curses, the prophecies, the 333 prophecies that were about the first coming of Christ. You were entrusted with those. Not just to hear them yourself, but to share them with others. You were entrusted with the oracles of God. First and foremost, that's it. And then he gets sidetracked because he never goes on to a second, third, fourth. You don't see that until chapter 9. And 
I'm going to let you read that yourself to find out at least eight other ways that he says it's a blessing to be a Jew. But then he says, yeah, there's, there's much blessings to be a Jew, but it doesn't make you better than anyone else. There's advantage, there's privilege, but it doesn't make you better. You're still lost, just like everybody else, without Christ. So then he goes on to the next uh, objection, divine faithfulness. This is based on verses 3 and 4. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their, un- does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So God has said that he's our God. He's going to bless us and prosper us. Now we're unfaithful, so will God be unfaithful to us? And Paul says, heaven forbid. No, no. He said right from the get-go, there are blessings and cursings. And if you're experiencing part of the cursing now, that should make you very well aware that God is faithful. He does what he says he will do. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he he cannot deny himself. Verse 4 is from uh, Psalm 51, verse 4. So if you can imagine that this is a psalm that David wrote after he had had his affair with Bathsheba, after he had killed Uriah, her husband. Uh, And so he says these words. Um, So we said, "Does, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, and though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. He was saying, I was guilty. I sinned. And yet God forgave me, but he also judged me. There was a punishment that came with his unfaithfulness to God. And God was completely just. He was completely faithful in his forgiveness and in the penalty that followed uh, David's unfaithfulness. So he was saying, well, yeah, is divine faithfulness, what you need to know is that Jesus is the faithful judge. And he's faithful when he blesses his people. And he's faithful when people experience the punishment, the curses that come with not following his law. God is always faithful. Well, then he asks a question about righteousness. Well, but if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So, okay, I do something that's unfaithful. I'm unrighteous. It really magnifies God. It makes him to be like this really good guy. How could he judge me for that? I'm actually kind of glorifying him in that, right? And he says, heaven forbid. This is what he goes on to say. It says, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? God is faithful. He's righteous. He's always who he is. He doesn't change. Judgment starts in the house of God and goes out to everyone. If he can't judge the people inside the covenant, how could you judge the people outside? He says, how could you not judge the world? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Each one. 
So collectively, when God was looking at his chosen people, there's a people group that he loves and there's a covenant to, but each one is accountable to whether they follow through on obeying that covenant, entering into that covenant with God. And each one will be recorded, rewarded or punished based on how they've lived. So he says, God is always righteous. And finally, there's just twisted logic. And this goes down, verse 7, verse 8. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil so that good may come? So it's just taking this argument like to ridiculous means. It's like, okay, so if my sin makes God look better because he can forgive me, isn't that wonderful? Shouldn't I just keep sinning? Isn't that what grace is all about? I don't need to worry about this law anymore. And Paul says, you know what? If that is the way that your logic goes, if when you hear about the beautiful grace of God to free you from sin, and you take that to mean it gives you license to sin, you deserve your condemnation. Your condemnation is just. Don't treat God like a fool. Don't treat the message of grace as to be a, a free license to sin all you want. It's to be free in him, to have life eternal in him. So those are four of the objections that he anticipated. So the first bad news is that we are going to be judged. The more bad news is that you and I are absolutely guilty. That's just as clear as day throughout Scripture that you and I are guilty. When we look at verse 9, if you turn to your Bibles there, it says, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Please note here that it's both Jews. Everybody is under sin. And what's important to realize here is that we are enslaved to sin. We are sold under sin. We are dead in our sin. It does not say your sins. It's the state of being that each of us are from the day we were born. We were lost in our sins. We were dead in our sin. It's not about all the activities you do. Are they sinful? Do you deserve judgment because of that? Well, the answer is yes, you'll be accountable for those things. But it's just the fact that right off the get-go, you and I, without Christ, are dead in sin. There's nothing you can do about it. No good works that matter to anything. You can be as giving and generous and kind. doesn't matter. You're dead in sin. You're, we're disconnected from God, which is the essence of sin. So then he goes on to say, okay, so if that's our, our state, I want to, maybe you don't believe that. Maybe you don't believe that at the core of who you are, you're just separated from God, that you're dead. Let me just give you some evidences then. Let me show you some things that you should see in your day-to-day -day life to help you realize that you're sinful. And then he goes, as it is written, which is Paul's way of saying, I'm going to start referring to the well, they didn't call it the Old Testament then, but it's what we call the Older Testament. The Old Testament. I'm going I'm to show you from God's word, the word that you believe, that this isn't brand new stuff. God has always been saying it. 
And he goes into what's the longest string of old T, old T passages in the New Testament. He, he quotes six different areas. And he's already quoted one, Psalm 54, 51, verse 4, and now he's going to quote six more to make his point. And you know what? I just want to give a little shout out here to what we call our sermon scripture studies. Because we cannot, week after week, get, do justice to what a passage is saying. And we cannot just... Let's put it this way. You will be so enriched if before or after this message you dig into the word of God yourself and you read it over and over again and say, Holy Spirit, I just want to know you and I want to know who you are and who I am in you. And our scripture studies help you do that. It also gives you notes from three study Bibles and one concise commentary. There's different questions there. This is meant for your own personal study to get deeper into the word of God so that you get to know him and yourself more. And it's also meant to give you something to start talking with others about. So you can say, you know what, I'm getting to know God more. You should want to talk about him. You should want to ask other questions about him. So that's my little promo. Please make use of sermon scripture studies to enhance your relationship with God and with others. Okay, so now he's going to start talking about, I think just broadly speaking, sins that kind of revolve around our character. And so he starts off by saying, none is righteous, no, not one. Then he goes, no one understands, no one seeks for God. We read that and say, oh, come on. How can that be true? There's so many religions. People are all looking for God. There's so many different ways people are searching. But God says, no, that's not true. Not at all. From my perspective, this is what you're all doing. You're putting your head in the sand. You don't want to know me. You want to know something that you want to know. So you make it up. You make... So he's saying all religions are just your attempt to make yourself feel like you're doing something. You're not really seeking me in that, is what God is saying. You, no one seeks me apart from me calling them. And then he goes on to say, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Wow. That sounds kind of harsh. This isn't the gospel message I'm used to sharing with people. But what does it say there? We have become worthless. Oh, have you heard that in a gospel presentation lately? These verses in the Old Testament were written particularly to the people that Jewish, Jewish people thought were wicked. It says that they were evildoers, wicked men, men of violence, fools. And now Paul is taking those same verses that apply to the wicked, that the Jewish people would say, yeah, those are wicked people. Now he's saying, guess what? They apply to you too. He doesn't hold any punches. He wants them, and he wants us, he wants me to know that without Christ, I am guilty. Okay, well, let's look at conversation. And we looked at character. What about guilty through conversation? And uh, so he gives some words about the tongue. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 
Doesn't that remind you of what we learned about in James this summer? James says, with it, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, this not ought to be. Does a spring pour, uh, spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Our, our tongues, when we're Christians, are, are meant to be holy and pure, but they're definitely not. And you take Christ out of the picture, and they, it's just ugly. What comes out of my mouth is horrific when I'm not connected properly with Christ. Jesus himself said in Matthew 15, verse 11, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And so I think Paul used some beautiful imagery here to talk about from the inside out. It just, it's bad in here, and when it gets out, you just see how bad it is, right? From the, from the throat to the tongue to the lips to the mouth, and then all of a sudden, it's out there. And you know what? Sometimes when you say something and you look back and say, well, how could that come out of my mouth? That was terrible. God says, that's because that's what's still in your heart, Doug. I still have to refine that. Imagine what it was like before you met me. Lord, am I ever glad that you're working on me because that's not a pretty place in there. Thank you for changing me. So he says, so there's the tongue. And now let's just look at conduct overall in general. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. They don't know anything about peace. Isn't that what people really want in this world? They want peace that passes understanding, but they don't know how to get it. He's quoting Isaiah 59 verse 8 here. It says, The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Did you get that part there? They have made their paths crooked. God has done everything he can say to say this is the right way. Walk in it. And we do everything we can to make it the way we want it. And we don't know justice. And we don't know peace. And sin is evident in our conduct. And the last thing I'd say that he wants us to see that there's sin in our conceit, but just our, our posture towards God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't think about God. We don't think about God naturally. We think about ourselves. We don't realize often, again, without the grace of God, we don't realize that there's judgment coming and that I'm guilty and because of that, I don't fear God. This is definitely true before I know Christ, but it's sure a danger knowing Christ as well. Sometimes, man, I treat God way too familiar. I forget how holy he is and how far I am from him without Christ. I don't have that, that wonderful fear that keeps me to draw near to him, to say, Lord, I need you. As soon as I take my eyes off of you, all these sins come running right back. I just go right back to the flesh. Lord, I need you. Without you, I'm dead. I'm lost. I just want to highlight here as we've been just talking about being guilty, that there's a big difference between acknowledging guilt and living in it. And at this point, I'm talking specifically as a Christian. 
once I've given my life to Christ and I'm forgiven, I still need to acknowledge guilt. That's why coming to the table today, examining myself and saying, Lord, I've still been sinning. Will you forgive me? And, and God says, Jesus says, Doug, I'm going to wash your feet. Your whole body is clean. I've done that already, but I'm going to wash your feet. You need to know your guilt. If you don't understand your guilt, you don't appreciate grace and you lack gratitude. That's always the way it is. If in your life, this is a broad statement, but if you're lacking a passion for God or gratitude, it's probably because you don't understand how guilty you are without him. In him, you've been completely forgiven. Christ has taken that penalty, and it's meant to make us love him. So my love increases the more and more as every time I take my eyes off Christ, I still do things wrong that are guilty. I don't go in and out of salvation, but I still sin against him. But that's quite different than living in guilt. And that's what, as Christians, we're not supposed to be. That would be called shame. Who am I? I did this. Oh, I can't go back to God. No, you don't live in guilt. You just acknowledge it. You give it to God and you say, thank you that you've already paid for it. I love you. I love you that you, you've forgiven me even in the midst of it. I'm just covered by your grace. Thank you for the Lord's table that reminds me that what you did was a once and for all act of forgiveness towards me. How could that possibly be true? I sin against you again and again and again. I'm always under your grace. But recognizing our guilt even as Christians, is hugely important to help us gain the gratitude that God deserves from us. Well, if the bad news is that we're going to be judged and the more bad news is that we're guilty, the worst news is you can't save yourself. Understand that. There is nothing you can do to make things right with God in your own strength. Please hear that. There is nothing you can do. All your good works mean absolutely nothing towards making yourself right with God. They may make you feel better. They don't make God feel better. They don't change that relationship. That has to be a God-done thing. So now let's get into reading Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. This goes back up to the beginning of the chapter when it says that we are lost under sin. This is pretty much the same thing. You're under sin, you're under the law. You're just stuck in it. The law is just showing you that you are lost. And then he goes on to say, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago we had a skit here, uh, kind of like a lawyer room skit? And the whole point of that skit is that there's nothing that we can object to. When God points out again and again and again how I'm lost, how I'm dead in my sin, there is nothing that I can say to defend myself. Uh, there's, there's absolutely no objections. And this isn't just for me, this isn't just for you, this is for the whole world. That's what it says. The whole world will be held accountable to God. So, why give us the law if I can't be saved by obeying it? Doesn't that seem a little bit weird? 
Didn't you give me the law so that I could live right and I could please you? And he answers this when we read verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall, there, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So why have we been given the law? Pure and simply for this, so that we could know the knowledge of sin. You want to know the truth about yourself without Christ? Read the law. Again, we're lost. We're stuck in sin. We're dead in sin. And if you doubt that, just read the law and see how well you do. If you break one of them, you break all of them. You won't get very far. You're going to realize you're stuck. You can't save yourself. It's impossible. You know, when we talk about what the condition of man is, I think sometimes we think we're just really banged up people, right? Like, I just, I need, I need a physician. I need to be, you know, just made better because I'm walking along and I'm just struggling. I need God to fix me, please. And, and maybe that's the image we have. I need God to really fix me because I'm not doing so well. And God says, Doug, you don't, you're not even close to the right picture, you're more like this. You're just under a tombstone. You're completely dead. And this next image might disturb you a bit more, but there's nothing funny about it, Doug. Without me, you are enslaved to sin. You have an eternity in front of you. Doug, I created you out of love so that you would live forever from the day you were born, that your life would never stop. And right now, you are choosing life without me. And I can tell you, that is going to end very badly for you. Because right now, Doug, my common grace showers you. I love you. You see me. But there's going to be a day that if you don't choose me before the day you take your last breath, when that day comes, I remove myself completely from you. And you have never experienced anything like that before. And I don't want you to experience that. I want you to be free. And I've done everything I possibly can to tell you who I am, to show you that I love you, to show you that you can't save yourself and that you need my son. And I love you so much to get on to that right away. You know what? I, I, I want to ask you a question. Is this how you see people who are lost without Christ? Is this how you understood yourself before you knew Christ? Maybe you were so young, you never even thought about what it meant to be a Christian. But do you think about that? That this is who you are without Christ? I'm going to tell you a little bit more about John. I saw John on the boat for the rest of the time out there, and, and I knew he was part of the LGBTQ group. There were different mixers, and I'd see him there. And actually, the first night, I already knew that that whole group was just an LGBT group. And uh, I sat there, and I just said, Lord, I just do whatever you want in this conversation. And uh, throughout the week, he'd always wave me down. He'd say, Doug, come over here. I want you to meet some friends. And every time I'd come and meet his friends, they were all kind, but within 60 seconds, they were gone. And the last time I saw him, we were in the dining room area on the top of the boat, 
and they were having dinner, they had just been finishing off, and he said, same thing, come on, Doug, and I pull up a chair, and honestly, it's like I was the plague. Within 60 seconds, they were all very kind, but they just left, and he looked at me and goes, Doug, what did you do? <laughs> I said, oh, John, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to make your friends feel awkward around me. He goes, no, no, that's, that's their issue, that's not yours, and uh, we had a conversation about a book he had been reading about Jesus, and he had been telling me about He said, I want to show you this book. And he told me about it. And, and it was about a lady who had dreams and said, these are the things that Jesus had been telling her. And he goes, and I agree with almost everything she's saying in this book. And so I listened and I said, you know, John, I, I, I totally believe that God still speaks through dreams and visions, but it, there's nothing new in that. It's going to coincide with what he's already said in his word. And what I have to tell you about this book there isn't one thing that she said about Jesus that would parallel what God says about himself in his Bible. So that gives me great concern. And we had another long conversation. And at the end of it, towards our, the last part of our conversation, he looked at me and he just said, Doug, you know, I have a good life. I've been a good husband. Okay, like, you know, we got divorced, but I love my kids. I still take care of my, my wife. I have good friends. I've had a good job. I've made a good living. I've been generous. I've been kind. But I'm empty. And so we talked about that for a while and about how Jesus wanted to change that in his life. And uh, the last thing we talked about before going, he looked at me and he said, Doug, I don't want to offend you by what I'm about to say. And I kind of laugh because I said that to him earlier. He says, I never want to offend you. I'm saying these things to you as a person I hope you consider a friend. He said the same thing back to me. And he said, I don't want to offend you, Doug, but I want to tell you a story if you're willing to hear. I said, yeah. He goes, you know, when we were uh, sitting down watching the play, yeah. He goes, well, when you left, I checked my phone and uh, I had a message from a friend who was back home and he had just watched a play. And, and he texted me saying that, hey, I just finished watching whatever this play was. This uh, nice man sat beside me uh, throughout, the, throughout the play and we just kind of pleasured each other all night. And then the next text was, there's got to be more to life than this. And he texted his friend back saying, I had a similar experience. A young man sat beside me tonight but all we've been doing is talking about God. Do you think there's something we need to know? We never know what God will do in our encounters with others. What we do know is that he loves every person deeply. And if there's something in you that hinders a conversation because you feel uncomfortable, because you say, oh, I'm not sure about that, but you know that that person needs that you don't know what the words are going to be coming out of your mouth. You just know that you have to enter in and see what God will do. That's what God asks. He asks us to love people as he does, as we've been loved ourselves, and to remember what he did to make it possible, not just for me to be saved or you to be saved, but anyone to be saved. And that's what we remember today as we come to the Lord's table. We remember that the law will not save us, but it's a hugely important step to help us understand how we can be redeemed. I don't need a savior until I understand that I'm guilty. I don't need a liberator until I understand that I'm dead. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
while we were still sinners. We were the enemies of God. He came, he loved us, he died for us, he rose again, he entered the glory, he said, I'm coming back again. And I just want you to highlight here too that it says, still sinners, when God enters your life, something substantial changes. You are not the same person anymore. The primary word that God uses to identify you is saint. If that doesn't humble you, if that doesn't bring you to your knees to say, Lord, I'm not worthy of that. You're not worthy. God's just that good. He's changed you. And when you come to this table, when we think, oh, I'm a sinner, so I sin. Of course, I, I sin. God says, no, you're a saint, Doug. When you come to this table and you confess your sin, it's because you most likely chose to sin. I've freed you from sin. You still do things unintentional, but Doug, you still sin way too much as intentional. You're a saint and you're choosing to sin. You need my grace so much and I gladly give it to you. That's what we're doing today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up and I'll just pray for us as they do. Father, today we thank you for the opportunity to get to know you through your word. And we look forward, Lord, to eternal life with you. We know we get a taste of it now because Jesus Christ is already within us by your Holy Spirit. We have a taste of eternal life. But someday we will enter into eternal life fully with no sin. We thank you, Lord. We can't even imagine what that will be like. But Father, we know so many people who don't know you. Will you use us, Lord? I know the answer is yes. Give us willing hearts, Lord, to share you with others as you deserve to be shared. To be willing to have the hard conversations so that people might understand clearly the bad news so that they can embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this table. Thank you for this time to remember you now and who we are together because of you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna give you just a few moments. If you don't have one of these uh, containers with the, the bread and the juice, you can get it in the back of the room. Or if you're home right now, please take this time to go to the kitchen and, and get something that you, we can use to have communion together. During the meal, Jesus took the bread, broke it, and gave thanks, saying, this is my body, eat, do this in remembrance of me. Let's do likewise. And after the supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant which I've given for you. Do this in remembrance of me until the day I return. Let's do likewise. Amen. Lord God, it is a joy to declare your truth. We thank you for the good news that you have given us about your son Jesus. We thank you for showing us the news before that of how much we need him. And I thank you for the reminder that you continue to give us of how lost we would be and how lost many are. Chained to the grave. 
And Lord, I pray that our gratitude for what you've done for us to set us free through Christ, I pray, Lord, that our longing for others to be free as well, that those things would be hallmarks of how we live, that those things would be pouring out of us because of what you are doing through your spirit. Thank you for what you've taught us today. And I pray that when we go from here in this place, when we continue into our day, wherever we are, I pray that the words that we just sang would be true. I surrender all now to Christ the Lord, because in Jesus I am saved. Thank you. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.